Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast done in collaboration with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. Enter the Wu-Tang. Return to the 36 Chambers. People listening to these albums by the Wu-Tang Clan and its members likely never knew about Sophia Chang, a Korean-Canadian woman who worked with members like RZA, ODB, and Method Man. Q-Tip of A Tribe Called Quest called Sophia Chang, quote, an integral part of the golden era of hip-hop. The baddest bitch in the room charts Sophia Chang's life, from her childhood in Vancouver through time in New York's hip-hop scene and travels between the United States and China managing martial arts through to the present day. Sophia Chang is the music business matriarchitect who managed Old Dirty Bastard, Riza, Jizza, D'Angelo, Raphael Sadiq, Q-Tip, and A Tribe Called Quest, as well as working with Paul Simon. She did marketing at Atlantic, A&R at Jive, A&R Admin at Universal, as well as serving as general manager of Riza's Razor Sharp Records, Cinematic Music Group, and Joey Badass's Pro Era Records. Sophia is currently a screenwriter and author, developing numerous TV properties, including a scripted series based on her memoir, The Baddest Bitch in the Room, for FX. She trained with and managed a Shaolin monk who became her partner and father of her children. She produced runway shows for Vivian Tam and Project Runway All-Stars, and recently created Unlock Her Potential, a program that provides mentorship for women of color. Today, Sophia and I will talk about her life, her time in the music business, her relationship with hip-hop, and her transition to martial arts and other cultural activities. We'll talk about what spurred her to tell her own story and what it was like to be an Asian woman working in these spaces. So, Sophia, you've touched so many different areas of art and culture throughout your life, including the publication of this memoir. I was hoping you might tell us more about all the various cultural art forms you have experience with. Okay, Nicholas, I'll take you through them kind of chronologically. So when I moved to New York City in 1987, I dove into the music business. I am most um, closely associated with working in hip hop and even more closely so with Wu-Tang Clan, as you cited. I have also spent some time in fashion, but not that much time, as well as um, a good portion of my life in martial arts, 12 years running my ex's uh, temple teaching um, where he taught Shaolin Kung Fu and Chan Buddhism. And then I published my audiobook last September, September 2019, through Audible and Hello Sunshine. And then it came out in print form this September. And finally, I've spent some time in film, in television. But television is where I spend the vast majority of my time right now. And it I see myself as a storyteller, a screenwriter, and an executive producer in TV. So much of your memoir deals with your time in the hip-hop scene in New York with groups like the Wu-Tang Clan. But what's the era of hip-hop history we're actually talking about? So the bulk of the memoir in the earlier chapters, what I'm talking about, I moved to New York City in 1987, and then I left hip hop in 1995 when I met uh, Yan Ming and started training in Kung Fu. That era is largely considered the golden era from the late 80s to the early 90s. I re-entered music 
uh, around 2007, 2008, uh, managing talent and then doing a stint um, working at a major label as well as running a couple of small labels. <clears throat> but my formative years were during the golden era. So, so what sort of artists, what sorts of albums, what sorts of songs are we talking about in this era? So when I think about the albums that were really most meaningful to me during that era, it would absolutely be the Native Tongues, which comprised A Tribe Called Quest, De La Soul, Moni Love, Latifa, Black Sheep, Leaders of the New School, um, as well as artists like Nas, NWA, Ice Cube, Snoop. Um, Public Enemy was very, very important to me. And then there were other groups like Brand Nubian, Poor Righteous Teachers. Um, oh, and I forgot to add the Jungle Brothers to uh, the Native Tongues as well. Um, and De La Soul. So those were the groups that, uh, those were the kind of artists that um, I was around at the time. Um, but as your memoir notes, I mean, you, you'd you actually been involved in the industry um, before before turning to hip hop. Um, I know kind of before you got in the scene, you knew musicians like um, Joey Ramone, you worked with Paul Simon. Um, I guess, what was what was that like before you made the shift to hip hop? Well, I met Joey Ramone on a trip to New York before I actually moved here. And it was great to know the man behind the music because they're always different things, right? The artist is rarely exactly as you perceive them to be. That was a lot of fun. You know, Joey is so quintessentially New York. I think he's from Queens, God rest his soul. And, you know, he lived in the East Village, 9th Street and 3rd Avenue, and he was just really an East Village guy. He really defined an era, and, you know, the Ramones are largely considered to be the um, forefathers of punk rock. And working with Paul Simon was completely different experience because I worked with Paul Simon coming off of Graceland, his largest, his uh, biggest selling album, a global tour, and this tremendous commercial success and working with somebody like Paul, you are ushered into a strata, a stratum that is pretty exceptional, right? I mean, Paul is dealing with the highest levels of people, whether they're musicians or engineers or executives. And that's how I met my mentor, Michael Austin, was working with Paul. And now, of course, I, I, I have to ask, um, what was it like to work with members of the Wu-Tang Clan? Working with members of the Wu-Tang Clan was one of the most significant chapters in my life. So let's take their talent, which is undeniable, off, their table, off the table. Let's take their success also. <laughs> um, you know, undeniable off the table. Working with Wu-Tang Clan was extremely significant for me personally and culturally because it, growing up in Vancouver, I was a yellow girl in a white world who wanted to be white. And it wasn't until I discovered hip hop that I started to explore my own culture. And it was through Wu-Tang in particular because of their 
love of and reverence for Asian culture that I started to be able to see the beauty of my own culture. So that was very significant. They made me feel truly seen in a way that I hadn't before, valued in a way that I hadn't felt valued before. And um, they claimed me, you know, they were very, very protective of me, which I really appreciated and appreciate to this day. They were extremely respectful and continue to be extremely respectful and supportive of all of my endeavors. So, you know, um, I think in the, in, before we started recording, I think um, we, you were correcting me on some of the terms I was using to describe your role in the music industry. And so I think I'd like to quickly ask, what's working in the music industry like? What's it mean to be a manager of an artist, a producer for an album, to work A&R at a record label? Could you kind of help clarify what, what, what these roles are and what their responsibilities are? So if anybody wants to know more about the music business, you should pick up Don Passman's book called All You Need to Know About the Music Business. He is a legendary attorney who's been doing this for decades. His book is now in its ninth printing. And in that book, he says, your manager is the CEO of your enterprise. What that means is as an artist manager, I oversee every single aspect of their career. It doesn't mean that I do all those jobs. I'm not the attorney. I'm not the booking agent. I'm not the publicist. I'm not the label, but I oversee all of those people. I'm not their boss, but it means that I'm in communication with them. I am the front line for the artist. I am the first line of defense. I am the face of the artist when they don't want to be in a room or on a call. I am touching every single aspect of their career, not just recording, not just touring, but if they venture out and do other things. For instance, I got Jizza into lecturing. I helped Riz's transition into film and television scoring, which eventually led him to doing all the multi-hyphenate stuff that he's doing now. You are also speaking to their attorney. You're speaking to their business manager. It really is touching every aspect of the life, which is why I enjoy management so much. An A&R person, A&R stands for artist and repertoire. The artist is self-explanatory. The repertoire is the songs that the artist sings. So back in the day, there were a lot of artists who weren't songwriters. They had great voices and they were great performers. And then the A&R person would go out and find the songs for them. This happens a lot now as well. Um, and that's, you're essentially a talent scout, but really what it's turned into is that you are the talent scout. You are the person out there scouring wherever it is that people now find talent, whether it's YouTube or TikTok or, you know, I don't know, do people still go to clubs to find talent? They probably do. Um, you know, hearing it from other people, hearing it from other artists or hearing it from other producers, being an A&R person is largely considered the most glamorous, <clears throat> I suppose, job in the music business. And it is also, if you think about it, the most critical because all of the other departments, sales, marketing, promotion, accounting, business affairs, none of it means anything if you can't, if you don't actually have a good record. In terms of a producer, um, and they're very, producing is very different in television and film than it is in music. A music producer is the person that is in the studio and makes the music and pulls the song together. The producer is the person that goes in the studio with the artist and pulls their vocal performance out of them. The producer can also guide the direction of a song, 
bring in the musicians, um, suggest, make suggestions on the spot. Being a producer is extremely creative in a way that I am simply not creative. I've never been a music producer. I am now a television producer. I have produced events, but I've never been a music producer. It's a skill I don't have. So I'd, I'd like to loop back around to a, to a comment you made earlier about um, the comment you made about growing up in Vancouver. And I think I'm going to quote you a little bit, you know, being a, being a yellow, a yellow girl growing up in a white world who wanted to be white. Um, now I, I, I expect you've been one of a very small number of Asian women in the spaces you're, you're working with, I think, especially perhaps the music industry. Um, when you were in the music industry, how did you deal with your, with your Asian identity? You already mentioned that working with the Wu-Tang Clan helped you see the, see the beauty of your own culture, I think, to use your words. How did I deal with being Asian? Well, um, you know, being Asian outside of music in, in the dominant culture, which is white by default, right? Being an Asian in a white supremacist country, which America is, you are always othered, right? You are always reminded that you are on the margins. And again, to my point about Wu-Tang Clan, hip hop and Wu-Tang in particular was the first time I felt like I truly belonged. So I'm a first gen Asian. I, like many first gen immigrants, I lost my language. I rejected my culture. So that puts me kind of in between because I'm not fully Korean, right? Because I'm Canadian. And I'm not fully Canadian because I still have roots there. But getting into hip hop and being so fully embraced, I felt like I was seen and understood and respected. There were absolutely times that I felt other with, because I was other. I was a minority within a minority within a minority. I'm a woman. I'm Asian. I'm in hip hop. And each of those concentric circles take me further out. Um, and I absolutely remember feeling, I don't know if I actually deserve this job. I'm a Korean Canadian French lit major. Um, this culture is not of my making, right? And I am being welcomed into a world and it was a privilege to be welcomed into the world. And all I could do was my best. I think the reason that I was accepted to the degree that I was, was that I was earnest in my passion for and belief in the culture and that I only ever wanted to be a proponent to whatever small degree I could do that. I asked Method Man, you know, how did you feel about me coming into your world as an Asian woman? And he said, so if, you know, you, I, I really love that you saw us for who we were. So I think that was a reciprocal feeling. I think that the artists I was around would say that I saw them beyond the music and the culture as humans and as people. And I love them as people. So it was, um, at times it was difficult, but it wasn't a really big obstacle for me. It was more an internal obstacle for me having my own doubts about whether or not I could do the job. It's really great to hear you talk about your time in the in the music industry um but i do want to 
note for listeners like that that is only part of the of the memoir it's probably perhaps the first third um the next kind of third of your memoir talks about your time uh working in martial arts um so i guess first question is what 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 spurred that move from the music industry to managing martial arts and then also kind of what what was it like to to work in that space well meeting wu-tang clan uh, they got me interested in Kung Fu movies. Watching Kung Fu movies got me interested in training in Kung Fu. Being interested in training in Kung Fu led me to uh, Shi Yanming, who's a 34th generation Shaolin monk, who then became my business partner, my partner, romantic partner, as well as the father of my children. So if you think about it, if it wasn't for Wu-Tang Clan, I wouldn't have the most important element in my life right now, which is my children. It's kind of extraordinary chain of events. That's really how I go. Like many other people in America, I'm sure they listened to Wu-Tang Clan. They got curious and said, oh, shit, I want to try Kung Fu. What was it like being in that space? Well, here I was again um, in an, an extremely male-dominated, <laughs> highly testosterone-driven world. And I don't actually have a problem being in those worlds. I quite enjoy it. I don't feel diminished. I feel empowered because I know I can hold my own. What was interesting about being in the world was that Yan Ming was surrounded by men. He was surrounded by devotees, and I would even go as far as to say that a lot of them were sycophants. And when I came along, it was clear that I was going to disrupt their, what they saw is their harmony, their harmonious place in the temple because I was so dominant. So we weren't lovers immediately. I came in and I started running the business and then we fell in love with each other. And I was definitely seen as, um, somebody who a racist would say I was seen as a Yoko Ono figure. <laughs> um, that I was kind of uh, going to be a bad influence. Um, but that was all bullshit, right? That was all fucking misogyny. That was all, you know, the men that were threatened by my presence. Um, but the truth of the matter is none of those motherfuckers could do what I could do. You couldn't. I brought Wu-Tang Clan to the temple. I brought RZA into Yan Ming's life. And that was really the game changer, frankly, was RZA. All of the publicity that I got around RZA and Wu-Tang, nobody else could do that because nobody else has existed in hip hop the way that I had. Nobody else had that relationship. So I was, I did, I was, my marketing savvy and my publicity savvy that I had learned in the music business really came to fruition when I managed the temple. So it was, it, it was politically, it was very interesting. Physically and spiritually and psychically and emotionally, it was an extraordinary experience. You know, there's a saying when the teacher is ready, when the student is ready, the teacher will come. And I learned from Yan Ming the greatest spiritual lessons of my life. I am 55 and I'm still training Shaolin Kung Fu by myself in my tiny little apartment six days a week. I will not stop training until my body does not allow me to do it anymore. My body is a machine. My body is my temple. I am stronger. 
faster, more powerful at 55 than I was at 45, at 35, at 25, at 15. There is no doubt about it. And it is the it is the binary of both Shaolin Kung Fu and Shan Buddhism that each one reinforces the other. So it was absolutely a huge turning point in my life. So, I mean, you've, you've done so much in music and martial arts and, and in other spaces. Um, what spurred you to, to sit down and, and write your story, to write this memoir? And what was it like to kind of chart your life from beginning to where it is now and I guess final question on this point, you know, were there, are there events that you now see differently kind of looking back on them years, if not decades later? So years ago, a friend said, you know, you, Sophia, you should really write a memoir. You have all these crazy stories. And I couldn't wrap my head around it because it felt like an exercise in narcissism. Then in 2014, I went and worked 2013, I went and worked at Universal Music Group. Lean In came out. Sheryl Sandberg's book about women and the willing willingness to lead or whatever. And when I worked at Universal, I started mentoring a number of young women. When I say young, I mean fresh out of college. And I realized that my experience as a working mother, having been in so many different fields, as a single mother, being just a hustler, an entrepreneur, that it could be instructive to tell my story. And only at the point at which I understood that by telling my story, I could be in service of others, did I fully embrace it. Because otherwise, I was very happy to remain anonymous. I was acutely aware that when I decided to start telling my story that I was going to abdicate my anonymity. I didn't see it as gaining fame. I saw it as abdicating my anonymity. I saw it as a loss. Remember, I've been working with famous people since 1987. I know the price that people pay for fame. And it is a dear, dear toll that it exacts. I also never gave a shit about money like that. I appreciate what it can get, but I never chased the money. So the sole motivation was... <clears throat> I can help people. I believe that's why God put us here is to be in service of others. And so I had originally imagined my memoir as a lean in for women of color. And then it turned into what you've read, which is a traditional chronological memoir. The process of writing at first was very difficult. And then I turned a corner and it became very easy in terms of the stories. Look, I have a pretty bad memory, so I'm sure that there are things that are inaccurate. You know, a day where I said it was sunny, maybe it was raining. I said that I was nine, maybe I was eight. The verisimilitude of it doesn't really matter to me. The memories matter and how it made me feel matter. Um, there are absolutely things that I look on differently. For instance, what I just told you about Wu-Tang Clan leading to my children, I'd never framed it that way until I wrote my book. Um, when I think about hearing the message by Grandmaster Flash and why that was so striking to me. I remember how I felt when I listened to it. I just remember being, as the French would say, complètement ébloui. I was totally blown away. And number one, I love music. I love to dance. I love music with a good beat, right? And it was just so compelling. But in retrospect, I think what was so magnetic about it was for 
an Asian girl in a white world being called chink, Jap, and gook, and then hearing this music by people of color about their own experience and writing their own narrative, as opposed to how I saw myself, right? Which was largely through the white lens of Hollywood because people weren't writing songs about me. I didn't see myself in the fucking magazines. I didn't see myself on any commercials, but I did see myself on TV and sometimes in film. And again, that was all through the white male lens of Hollywood. Here was an art form in which the artists were talking about their own experience and writing their own narrative. I think that that is also part of why it was so resonant with me. Also because hip hop helped me connect to my anger. And I mean that in the best way possible. My anger is one of the greatest sources of fuel that drives my engine. It is a righteous anger. Um, and you know, I try to uh, call upon the collective anger against the system to create a better world. So there are many, many things I see differently. You know, when you write a memoir and anybody out there who's listening, who's written a memoir, they will know that as you do this journey and you start looking into these stories, part of what you do is you talk to your friends and you talk to your family and they remind you of things that you've completely forgotten about, or you've remembered completely differently. And I also did what I call an emotional excavation, right, Nicholas? And that is that I examined many, many different points in my life and my relationship to those events are very different at um, 55 than they were when I was 10, 20, 30, 40, or even 50. So I'd like to kind of move to talking about, because um, we're, because we're, we're, I think, I think I've, Sorry. I think I'd like to move to talking about um, maybe bringing in maybe the perspective from Asia on some of these questions. Um, so first of all, you know, you are Korean Canadian. Um, South Korea, I think in the past in the past decade has become a global uh, cultural powerhouse, um, mostly in popular music, but also in areas like film. Um, as someone of Korean heritage who's been involved in these industries for a long time. What's your view of, of these changes? And why do you think um, Americans now seem ready to embrace, or maybe Westerners now seem ready to embrace kind of non-Western music, non-Western filmmaking? I think, I think Americans have been, you know, I think we should bifurcate those issues. I think of Americans yeah. have been ready to embrace Asian filmmaking for a long time, a long, long, long time. Think about... That's true. That's true. Right? Think about... Um, Oh my God, Kurosawa. Uh, going back to what is that? Maybe the fifties. So let's let's focus on the music because that's a much more salient question. There, from to my knowledge, there have been many artists that have tried to break into the um, that have tried to break into Asian artists that have tried to break into the American market, which is which is the brass ring. Right. If you make it in America, then you make it all over the world because we are the we are the most prominent, predominant driver of pop music. Why do I think it happened? I think it was a couple of things. I think social media, I think that the digital era really helped usher this in. Um, I think that also. That the 
there are, you know, from what I understand in Korea, there are kind of these boot camps, right? Run by these different companies that really train these artists to speak English, to dance, to sing, and all of it emulates black music, whether it's hip hop or R&B. And I'm not saying that they haven't tried that before, because I think in the past there have been Asian artists that have been, um, that have come in, been in that tradition. But I think it's a combination of that. And again, I think social media has to have something to do with it. Um, and this formula that, the, and again, I don't know very much about K-pop, but I think it's pretty extraordinary what these artists have done. The formula is that they're boy, boy bands and girl groups, and they're all beautiful. They're relatively generic looking, right? Just like they are here or anywhere across the world. They're very talented. And from what I gather, I think they can all dance their asses off. So it's very formulaic and there's nothing fucking wrong with the formula, right? But I think it is really important when we as Asians talk about K-pop that we sign and the success of it and how thrilled I am about it, that we simultaneously acknowledge that K-pop would not exist without hip hop and R&B. I know that for a fucking fact. There's no fucking way. If K-pop was super generic white pop music, I don't think it would have the same impact because hip hop is the most, in my estimation, the most global dominant cultural force there is, hands down. I don't think you can name any other cultural force and certainly no other genre of music that has had the impact that hip hop has had. And I think that Korea understood that. And I'm not saying that all those groups are rappers, but it's it's grounded in hip hop and R&B production and um, dance and movement. I think, I think that's right. I mean, you have hip hop coming out of, out of Korea, out of China, out of Indonesia. Um, you know, hip hop is being made all over Asia by young people all over Asia. Um, I guess, I mean, do you have any, any theories um, as to what is it about hip hop that makes it so universally appealing? I guess both to listen to and, and to create. That's a good question. Um, I think that hip hop is to this generation um, or its generations, what rock and roll was to its generations. It is, um, there's a sense of rebellion. There's a sense of defiance. There's a sense of pride. Um, and there's, it's got a great beat. You know, you can really, really move to it. You, to me, you kind of have to be made of stone <laughs> to hear certain hip hop songs and not just move. I am physically compelled to move when I hear hip hop in a club. I cannot say that about other music. I can't say that about pop music. I can't say that about country. Um, and there is a poetry to it there is a spirit to it that is, I think resonates all over the world. I remember Rizzo told me when he was shadowing Quentin Tarantino on Kill Bill and he was in a club in Beijing. What is this, the early 2000s, right? That um, so the DJ must have recognized him and started playing Wu-Tang music and every kid in the club knew every single lyric. Now those are Mandarin speakers. 
he said, Sophia, those kids don't speak English, but they knew every word to our music. That's really stunning to me. And I think even if you don't understand the lyrics or you don't have the cultural context for it, there is a spirit and an energy and vibration and frequencies that are emitted from hip hop that are not, that do not come from any other genre of music. And I think that's incredibly compelling to people. So I'd like to, I guess, further from my last question about the book, um, I guess, return to the memoir. Um, And I guess for someone, for someone reading your memoir, if they were, if they were a young person, and I'm going to include myself in that, um, even though I'm, maybe not quite as young anymore. Um, I guess what, what kind of advice would you give a young person and a young Asian person, um, you know, trying to make a name for themselves, trying to work in spaces like music or fashion or television? Um, what sort of advice would you give them? Well, I'm going to speak directly to the Asian immigrant experience. <clears throat> so the stereotype it's a stereotype for a reason because it's largely true is that Asians are, if you're the child of Asian immigrants, you are expected to go into fields like medicine, law, engineering, right? In other words, completely non-creative fields. If you are considering, if you are a young Asian out there considering going into any of these fields, I would ask you to keep two things in mind. Number one, pursue your passion. Do the thing that lights your soul on fire and chase it as far as you can, as long as you are not endangering yourself or hurting anybody else. And number two, because I am a parent and my children are 18 and 20, to understand that if your parents don't agree with what you're doing, don't see the vision that you do, give them the grace that they simply don't they can't conceive of it because it's not their experience. And I'm speaking in very, very broad terms, right? I, I'm making very broad generalizations here. Most of our parents who come from Asia haven't done certain things, right? Haven't been in the music business, haven't been in film and television or publishing. I'll tell you that until I wrote a book, my mother couldn't tell anybody what it was that I did. So what I'm saying is while I tell you to pursue your passion and tell your story, don't get too frustrated with your parents because most of many, many, many of our Asian immigrant parents simply don't have the experience and the knowledge to be able to understand what you're doing. And they came here and they made a sacrifice and left their home and their country and their comfort and their culture and their language and their family to create a better life for themselves, but more specifically for their children. And so when they see us as children doing something that seems unsafe to them, right? Not physically necessarily, but financially, right? In terms of stability, that for a parent, I can speak from personal experience, that's worrisome. And I would also say that we have to tell our stories. And this goes out to anybody that lives on the margins. We live in uh, a society that is ruled by whiteness, where the default is whiteness. And so all of our stories are worse than not being told. Many of our stories are erased. So it means that we have to exert ourselves as narrators in order to be seen. It is not fair 
but it is reality. And until we keep pushing to tell our own stories, which takes courage (laughs) and it takes moxie and it takes passion until we do it in such great numbers that it's not surprising when you see like my show is going to be a 40 year old Korean woman on television. I want to see the day when people don't go, Oh shit, there's a show about an Asian person. (laughs) Uh, You know, I want to see the day when you go, Oh shit, there's a, there's an Arabic person on television and she's not he or she is not represented as a, um, as a, as a terrorist. Right. Um, that's why I think the show Rami is so special. So what I say to anybody on the margins is tell your story. You deserve it and we deserve it. Sophia, thank you so much for taking the time um, to be interviewed about your memoir. I guess final, final question. Sure. Um, Now that this project is, um, now now that you've completed your memoir, what's what's next for you? We've already mentioned, um, you know, working on, on the series based on your memoir. You've talked about uh, doing more work in television, kind of what's what's your next set of projects? So um, I am currently writing, uh, developing a television show based on my memoir for FX, and I am partnered with Pamela Adlon as my co-executive producer. I'm very, very excited about that. I hope it gets on the air. You never know. It's a camel through the eye of a needle. I am working on a number of other television projects, uh, mostly scripted. They all center women of color. I am only interested in telling stories about people whom we have not seen. I am, I describe myself as a storyteller as being fearless and subversive. If it does not fall into that category, I'm not telling the story. That doesn't mean that stories about white people that are neither fearless nor subversive are not interesting. I watch plenty of them, but I'm saying if I'm going to put my energy, my creativity, my passion, my ingenuity behind driving a story, it will always center people of color. And at this point, it's only women of color. You can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nick R.I. Gordon. That's N-I-C-K-R-I-G-O-R-D-O-N. You can go to AsianReviewOfBooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Facebook or on Twitter at Book Reviews Asia. That's reviews plural. And you can find countless other author interviews at the New Books Network at NewBooksNetwork.com. Sophia Chang, thank you again so much for taking the time to talk with me about your latest memoir, The Baddest Bitch in the Room. My pleasure. It was such a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you so much. 